Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com has more than 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word audio projects. You can get a free audiobook of your choice at www.audible.com slash race. And it's helpful if you scream it when you type it in. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the B-Side for Episode 7 of our national conversation about conversations about race. The Dolezald Out episode. I'm Tanner Colby here in New York with my co-host Raquel Cepeda. Hey, what's up, what's up? And joining us from St. Paul, Minnesota is our other host, Baratunde Thurston. Hello, Baratunde. Hello. So in our last episode, we covered the Rachel Dolezal Media Spectacular, the trouble with the term white allies, and the dangers felt by women who aren't pretending to be black. And 99.9% of our responses this week were about the term white allies. I think everyone was tired of talking about uh, Rachel Dolezal, as tired as we were before we even had the conversation. And um, so most of our comments centered around the second topic. Uh, first thing I want to do is play uh, an audio response we got. This is from Tiffany. I wanted to respond to some of Tanner's comments about feeling like the tone of fatherhood books, for example, and also web shows like Francesca Ramsey's um, video on white allyism and how that doesn't apply to him because he sees himself as an individual. He forgets the privilege that comes with actually being able to embrace American individualism as a core value and to express it in your daily life. That feeling you have is the same feeling that African Americans have every single day. Feeling like the world is talking to you as if you're less than, as if you're not intelligent enough, and as if you, as, and as if you don't represent yourself individually. And why allyism, for lack of a better term, does its role of balancing out the scales of oppression. So Tanner, I guess what I want to say is, I understand how you feel when you're taking in media that is designed to educate uh, adults because adult education has a condescending tone because educators and academics are elitist. However, be aware that the luxury of being able to fully embrace American individualism without any type of social repercussions is a privilege that goes along with white privilege. As a dark-skinned woman of color in academia, I understand that fact that yes, I whether I want to or not, I'm a representative of my entire race and of my gender. To want to be seen as a peer and as a colleague or a collaborator, I can't remember the word. Those terms all, like Baratunde mentioned when he was explaining why he disagreed, those terms all imply equality. And that's the whole thing. We're trying to flip the balance of scales, flip the balance of justice. And if you have to take a backseat role, I mean, do it. If you really care, but like you mentioned, this is about you getting something out of it, which kind of doesn't sit well with me either. But again, if you have a collectivist perspective, as many black people are raised in in America, we are one and one is we, then you would understand how counterproductive that perspective could be. But I mean, keep doing the good work. I like your writing and 
I'm kind of sad that you don't have an Alabama accent, but you know, you take what you can get and I will keep listening. Okay, so I had two thoughts on listening to that email. One is that she's kind of taking the position of two wrongs make a right, which is like, hey, we get treated like shit, so welcome to the party. We don't get treated like individuals, so now it's your turn to not be treated like an individual either, which doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. It should kind of be the opposite of where we start to treat people of color better. That's my first takeaway from My second is that, and she's reminding me of a point that I wanted to make last time but I didn't get to make, which is the idea of like, oh, well, well black people identify as a collective, and you know, if you need to take a back seat to that, that's what you should do. Well, what collective? What, what black leadership am I supposed to take a back seat to? You have color of change, you have the NAACP, you have black Muslims, you have people who believe in integration, you have people who are staunch supporters of you know, community solidarity. All of those black people disagree with each other. There is no collective that I should take a back seat to. In fact, the diversity of opinion amongst black people makes it incumbent upon me to be my own person, have my own thoughts and opinions and ideas, and to not just take a back seat and listen to what black people are telling me to do. I mean, I should take people's opinions and be considerate of them, but I find so often what white people do is they'll just go, and you see this with politicians all the time, white politicians, they'll just go talk to different groups of people of color and they'll just agree with all of them. And they'll say, I'm here because I support diversity. How about just joining a group or aligning yourself with whatever faction you think is speaking mostly to what you agree with? I could do that, yeah, but I might, no one group, no one person is necessarily going to represent an entirety of my opinion. We sit here, the three of us in this yeah. room, we agree on a lot of stuff, we disagree on right. other stuff. Right, right. I think you're special, Tanner. <laughs> and uh, and I, I don't mean that like as a pejorative, though it's fun to interpret it that way. I think there's, you know, we left the last episode with a little bit of like nitpicking on specific words and you really driving home this idea that you're not all white people, that you're not a baby or like a child or totally ignorant and that you're really selfish and that you're only in this because you're <laughs> selfish, right? Like you were, you were like, you're kind of like, don't paint me in the corner of like do good or white people. I'm in this for myself. And what Tiffany, I believe her name was just said, rubbed her the wrong way. It was like, she, she kind of let that one slide, but as I kind of think back and replay a bit and look at some of the comments coming in, I think that you are not, you don't describe a lot of white people mm -hmm. um, and that I have encountered, especially. And I, I, you know, there's people out there who are much more active or much more confused. Like you're in a, you're in a special spot on the spectrum. There's like a whole bunch of people who are just lost. And the idea of like, do this for yourself to get to better yourself and get something out of it. It's actually like it doesn't appeal like that's that's not a good sales pitch for that type of person who actually wants to be a part of something right. and like join something and do something good. You've taken your journey. It was a very personal journey back to your, your bust school system and, you know, housing and all the work you did in your book and, and post Obama election, like asking yourself, where are my black friends and where are my white friends as black friends? But I think there are some other people out there who are um not quite embracing the like in it for meanness exclusive of it is certainly that that was the tone. And so for Tiffany, I think what I pick out most from her comment is like, there's just confused people out there who want to be told how to engage in this or, or need some guidance and how to engage in this so that they don't come across like the person you're not, but like that very annoying white person who's just trying to be down mm -hmm. or who is a more destructive element than they intend to be 
Or the last piece, you know, and this comes up in a lot of the ally kind of guidebooks, who basically is like, all right, I'm here. Like, I can, I can rescue the blue people, you know, like an avatar. Like, I nailed it. I'm the samurai. I will teach the Japanese how to be their culture, and I will speak for you and, and do all that. So I'm not painting you in that corner, but I'm trying to describe different groups of white people I've encountered for whom I don't think uh, your focus on, like, I'm doing this for me, and it's good for my kid and my family doesn't quite uh, hit the nail on the head for them emotionally. Yeah, and also because, you know, getting to this state that we all really want to be in, this post-racial state where it doesn't, we don't have to even have these conversations, is a collaborative effort. Mm-hmm. I think that's the other thing that rubs are wrong. It's about, you know, supporting each other and collaborating and trying to get to a place where we can all be happy. So I think that that's basically what maybe kind of turned off. Like, how can we all move together as a collective if we're all doing it for self? Right. Well, here's another comment, and this is Sam, who basically kind of points out what Bertone just said, which is that um, maybe Tanner is not an ally. Maybe he has past ally status. <laughs> You've been promoted. Tanner has a long-term platform that others do not have, but what shall we call that aware and active white person who has a day job? My inner punk hates labels, and it seems the media requires it. It's not enough to say I'm not a racist. No, really, I'm not. But what is the shorthand for acknowledging unconscious bias and being an educated helper to the cause? As, and as I said, I think last time, the word ally in and of itself is not bad. To me, it's more the way it, it's been used uh, and is currently used by the Tim Wises of the world. You know, any any club that has Tim Wise as a member is not necessarily a club I want to belong to. Uh, and this uh, Robert points out, um, he took issue with my whole self-interest thing because he made the point that everything is fundamentally self-interested because uh, it all goes down to a basic drive for sex and food. And so... Um, we have to have other words to describe motives beyond that. And he points out that uh, people are turned off by the word ally because it's a move to maintain credibility with the pseudo-hyper-intellectual internet rationalists. So we sometimes end up distancing ourselves from the perceived sentimentalism at the heart of so-called social justice warriorism. And I think he's right, is that the sanctimony of the term is what I'm responding to. Mm. And the way it's used, it's either it's either sanctimonious or by the people who want to embrace it, or it's kind of condescending by other people who use it. Um, you know, and if you're talking about allies, if you're talking about FDR and Churchill uh, sitting at the table hammering out a peace agreement, yeah, those are allies, and that's not disrespectful to either of them. But there's also the sense of allies uh, from the Iraq war of, like, America and Poland, right? Where, like, Poland's like, okay, you're just <laughs> off in the corner, Poland, and we're America, and thanks for your troops, Poland, but don't, don't do anything. Don't make any decisions because you're Poland. And so I think it just depends on the way you're using it. Here's another pro comment from Leslie who kind of uh, backs up what Veritunde is saying. The word doesn't bother me. It brings to mind compatriots in the fight for justice, and the more people united together for justice, the better. The concept of being an ally or aligning oneself with someone who is a part of the other is a method of humanizing the other. To me, this means that allies are people who look at a group deemed to be the other compared to oneself and find the commonalities between the others and oneself. Our national conversation about conversations about race is sponsored by Audible.com. We're excited to have them on board. They have more than 180,000 audiobooks. You can download them and access them from a bunch of different devices. You got your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, your iPod, your, your Chromebook, or any other MP3 player in your arsenal of devices. One book you could try out, a little something called How to Be Black by me, Baratunde Thurston. If you like this voice, you can listen to that book with this voice because I did the reading myself. So visit audible.com slash race. That gives you a free audiobook and a 30-day trial. 
You don't have to use it on my book. You can use it on over 180,000 audiobooks and spoken word products that are out there. I've been an audiobook junkie since before Audible was created. I loved when they hit the scene. I'm even happier now. They have so many choices. I'm very proud that they are a sponsor of our national conversation about conversations about race. Again, audible.com slash race. Check it out. Click it out. Download something. Well, two cons in a row that I'm going to read that I found somewhat interesting, and then I'll, I'll throw it to you guys to see what you think. This is from Christopher. My sense is that the term is more common in the LGBT community, and I've many times had straight people ask, tell me they're allies, and it's always rubbed me the wrong way. Your show got me thinking more about why. I think it's that it's because identifying as an ally immediately makes the discussion about yourself and your identity, and perhaps your membership and identification with the group. When someone says, how can I help, that's great. But saying, I'm an ally, how can I help, tells me that your real goal is for me to validate you and include you in what you see as my club. I mean, if you see a car broken down on the side of the road or a person who maybe needs CPR, you don't say, I'm an ally. You just (laughs) ask if they need help. I think what troubles me more is this. My sense is that inclusion and respect and equality are morals we should expect of everyone. They should come standard on all humans, and standing up for them should not be an identity. Recognizing and opposing discrimination and privilege shouldn't earn anyone a gold star. They should just be expected. There's no word to identify oneself as opposed to murder. We just label the murderers. The same ought to be true of the racists, the homophobes, the bigots, and so on. A person who stands up for what's right isn't an ally. They're just a decent person. And here's another one from Paula. I, too, share your disdain for the word ally, chiefly because the struggle against racism is not a war and should not be framed as such. The struggle against racism ends not with winners and losers and treaties and divisions of spoils, but with a renaissance. This is not to say that if we all just love each other, the problems that deep-rooted racism has caused will go away, but I don't think the peripheral nature of allyhood as defined accomplishes that end either. It steps on its own tail by partitioning off people into either group A, inherent experts who by virtue of being oppressed each have all the answers and each are the microcosm of pure victimhood, group B, terrible oppressors who are cartoonish in their villainy, and group C, allies who want to help group A but because they look like group B only speak one language, out of turn. No one from any of these groups is a real person. No one from any of these groups gets the dignity of humanity that we're aiming for. And to me, that sort of goes back to what Tiffany said, which is like, well, we've been sort of oppressed and labeled and put in a box, so it's your turn to be labeled ally and perform your role, too, when the reality is we should just recognize everyone's full autonomy as humans. Paula, I could totally understand where she's coming from because she made me just right now see ally, the word ally, in a different context because I actually didn't have a huge problem with it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I also understand with the whole sanctimonious thing, and I and and I see where you're coming from. The way she framed it to me seems like we're attacking, you know, this issue of racism as if it's a war, and that's something that benefits us all mm-hmm. to try to arrive at a different place. At Mr. Thurston, I love both of those last two. I think when it comes to murder. And like standing against it, uh, my record will show that I'm firmly <laughs> against murder. I'm an ally for the living. Uh, the the last comment, I want to see that visually. I think she, yeah. you know, she drew these circles, group A and B and C, and the idea that you are uh, preternaturally disposed to racial justice leadership because you are racial injustice uh, experienced in racial injustice. That's real. I really like yeah. that, and I think there's. You know, the 12-year-old in me at, at Sidwell Friends School kind of being looked to to answer for all of black history by my white classmates as we read Huckleberry Finn wants to give her a round of applause for 
giving me the freedom to not know everything just because I've seen some ugly things. You know, it shouldn't be normal. I think there's a lot of work that we all do as people where we, we do it to help save the world. We also do it to give ourselves a sense of pride and meaning and some props to be like, look, I just, I just gave a homeless man some money. I'm a good person. Right. And we sort of, we give ourselves like a big pat on the back and, and ally, I, I suspect, I mean, we talked about the book that kind of encouraged it back in the mid nineties. I'm pretty sure I was a white person, uh, trying to create a special club to say, look, I'm not the racist white people over there. I'm not the silent majority or the, the passive majority. I want to do something. And, and the how can I help versus needing to be given a label. I don't know. I just, I, I like, I like all that. I think yeah. the, it comes down to the intertwined thing. And I think Tanner, where you spoke about for your child, it's a worse world for them. If that world is racist, that's beyond self-interest, right? Cause you're, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like genetic interest a bit. This is your kid, but it's not you directly. And right. you're thinking about the context that they're going to grow up in. It, it's something the president has you know, said a lot, but especially recently, we'll talk about that in the upcoming episode eight. Um, and it's something I remember from the, from the musical Serafina about apartheid liberation in South Africa saying an injury to one is an injury to all. And so as long as we are approaching the table, like with an open mind and an open heart and willing to use all the resources that are on offer, that's, that's the goal. It's not to belong to a particular group. It's to improve the situation for all the groups, except for the, for the murders and the racists and the racist murderers more specifically. That overlap doesn't need uh, a ton of resources from the rest of us. Right. And what definitely I would like to see is not only the conversation about race and racial justice being black and white, but actually including different communities of color. Mm -hmm. And not not being he was like you know it's being splintered. You're in that group. You're in that group. You're in that group. We don't have self interest. I think we all need to like basically just do the work together. No, one thing, and I think a more global point to the whole thing, and why I don't really love the word because I don't really love a lot of words because what I don't love really says the writer says I the writer love that no, but, well it's because I <laughs> You've am written thirty books. It's because <laughs> I am a writer. Is that yeah. as the racial justice movement has become a professionalized thing, it has adopted the jargon of corporate speak. You can read whole diatribes online that are nothing but jargonese in the same way that corporate, you know, synergy, you know, initiative, blah, blah, blah. You can read something about, you know, white supremacy, allied, you know, privilege, diversity, and it's just a word salad of jargon that they've you know, amassed through years of immersing themselves in, in, in this culture. And if you go back and you read Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and James Baldwin, I'm sure at some point they all used the word ally. I'm sure they all used the word privilege. I'm sure they all used the word maybe, maybe not diversity, but diverse in some capacity. But they used them just as words in their writing. They weren't yet jargon. And these words have become jargon, and I think that they've the lost whole... their feet. They've lost their energy, right? right? They've right. lost their their meaning, their true, their essence. Yeah, and it's yeah. the same way, you know, freedom and liberty, and you know, anti-government are used on the right. These are just words mm -hmm. that get get tossed out. There's one one quick thought on this, and my um, distaste in some ways for some of these terms is you draw an interesting analogy to to corporate language. I think it comes from me, my my. My cackles being raised comes from the academic nature of it all. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. academics are, are brilliant people. Many of them, I mean, some of them are just frauds and full of BS. But the ones that uh, I know are, and to continue to associate with are solid. They have some space to think about it or they re-engage in society in a, in a more activist 
way or in a more media centric way to promote the ideas beyond an academy and beyond a journal that no one on the ground is ever going to read or mm -hmm. maybe feel the the benefits of but i don't know i just i think it may be my own hang up there's and i joked on the last show about problematic as a word that i do not like and and i think there's a jargon of any kind whether it or it originates in the corporate world or in academia it is a very like it's a tool of separation and of like boundary drawing that i don't think is often very useful it is how we use language to enforce a set of like distinctions and rules and levels of value that I, I think is more harmful ultimately. And it's just like, okay, you just created a whole set of rules and words that only you understand so you can go enforce them. But does it really matter? Probably not. You know, and like what matters is like, let's use all the help we can get to get to the better place. And, you know, the breath wasted on beating the dead horse of like the rules of allyship feel and look like this. And when everybody's also kind of saying the same thing, like don't be a dick is basically what people are saying. <laughs> right. Uh, be humble. You know, don't act like you know everything, like have an open mind and listen before you talk. We can have guidelines that are helpful uh, as opposed to language, which is, you know, much more separating and hurtful because it's, it's a, the tyranny of jargon. Right. Mm -hmm. All right, and uh, well, I want to read one last email, and I think this one is useful because it's someone with some actual real-world experience uh, of dealing with this. It's from Janine. She says, Yo, love the podcast. A long-time Baratunde fan since the book, which is not that long a time, I guess. So I checked out the podcast expecting it to be cool, and it is indeed awesome. I write today to give props to that discussion of white allies. I, too, think it's kind of a whack term, which is not to say that I don't support a serious discussion of what Baratunde called the ethics of how and when white people move in the movement. Uh, Nobody is the background singer of their own life was profoundly insightful. Also, why be mean to Michelle, right? Beyonce wouldn't stand for that. <laughs> she goes on to describe what she does. She's an academic, and she studies how ideas about race traffic or don't traffic productively in college classrooms. I'm interested in how college students form and reform their race thinking through engaging with it in an academic setting, say in an African-American or history or sociology class, not a diversity training or orientation workshop. My intention is to look into classrooms and see if, when things are going well in there, students in a class on race get a bit further in the race discussion. I find that a classroom can be really productive in ways that Twitter or a dinner conversation often cannot. And part of it goes back to what your ally discussion raised, which is that ideally in a classroom, you do want people to speak from an honest place, from a centeredness in their own subjectivity, and to engage rigorously with the facts of race in a courageous way. Ideally, a great teacher can help a group of people do that, and it works distinctly well. Meaning, a bunch of white people being quiet and waiting for the people of color to show them the way is highly counterproductive in a classroom or any place where we want to learn. When that happens, the discussion sucks and the momentum doesn't build for the more uncomfortable but necessary learning to happen, right? Worse, nobody moves forward, nobody evolves. The down people of color, and I was that girl in college, are just mentally eye-rolling and high-fiving each other. The one to two down white people are probably talking way too much. Hey, Tim Wise, looking at you. And the majority of folks from all backgrounds who are in the quiet, inquisitive, confused, really want to learn middle are quiet, like they came in. And so goes our national conversation, right? I know real life is not a classroom, but I do see the wider culture as prime pedagogical space. I think being authentic and honest is a prerequisite for real learning and real dialogue around race. 
Black people never had an issue telling white people to take a seat when they needed to tell them. We are not so fragile, our shit is not so precarious, that we need white people to do a priori ally bow down performance. I mean, that's going to prevent real engagement while still not inoculating us from the co-optation or anything nefarious that's going to happen anyway. I want to be around white people who feel they have their own call to action, reflection, perplexity with this racist-ass country they live in, the domination and privilege they benefit from, their own stake, like Tanner said. And I want to be around white people who tell the truth about where they are at, who they are, so we can ideally move from point A to point B. And sure, if a Tanner gets out of pocket, cool, then a Raquel and a Baratunde can check him. But also, real talk, if a Baratunde or a Raquel gets out of hand, a Tanner can check him. That's an ideal classroom setting, but it's also an ideal racially complex but functioning democracy. That one deserves yes. a round of applause. Yes, I'm clapping. <laughs> I'm clapping. From, from I'm clapping from Minnesota, within. where I am right now. This is that was great. That was and, uh, pretty, pretty amazing. Th- that's yeah. I don't. You know, I'm not even going to add anything. I just say two thumbs up. A heart. If we're on Instagram, I will heart it. If we're on Facebook, I would like it. If we're on Google Plus, I would. Like probably slap myself because what am I doing there? But then I plus one it and then log out. You know, that was awesome. When I read, like when I read some of the emails and hear some of the feedback from academics and even engage with the friends of mine that are academic, like activists, like Abertune was talking about, I always tell myself, damn, I wish I had teachers like that because they really are. There's a group. There's a surge of like fearless academic folks that are trying to not only stay with their heads buried in the academy, but also you know, extend an olive branch to the people. And that's one of those emails that makes me really, you know, that brings that sentiment up in me over, you know, again and again and again. Yeah. I like the email. That's I why, love that email. That's why I brought it in. I think we can close there. That is a small sliver of the feedback we're getting from you. We're getting tons and tons and dozens of great emails. Please keep them coming. We will try and address as many of them as possible. Feedback from the last show, ideas for future shows. You are the fourth host of this show. Our co-discussants. You are our co-discussants. <laughs> uh, so stay tuned. Coming up in this feed very, very shortly will be episode eight of our national conversation about conversations about race, uh, where we will get into the Charleston shooting and how some white allies have responded to that. So we'll see you then. For Baratunde and Raquel, this is Tanner Colby. Thanks for listening.